Welcome to the first episode of Ladywood, a new podcast where we will be watching and re-watching the entire run of Deadwood as we lead up to them finally, finally making and releasing the sequel movie to wrap things up, which is something I thought would literally never happen. I know, it seemed like the day would, would never occur, and here we are. It's well, happening. Well... It's the only good thing happening in the world right now, and so we're going to do 36 episodes dedicated to it. I know. For a show that was kind of short-lived, it made a huge impression on me, and I haven't watched it in so long. I'm excited to like re- re-watch it and escape into this alternate reality where women had fewer rights <laughs> than they do now, um, and we're literally mostly property. But hey, maybe life now will seem better in the... Uh, Exactly. At least we don't live in Deadwood. Let's introduce ourselves before we get too much further into things. My name is Brandy Sperry. I live in Los Angeles. You might also know me from co-hosting the Downton Gabby podcast, which if you want to do a Downton Abbey rewatch, we got you all set over there. Seasons two through the end, all ready to go, as well as new episodes talking about other pop culture things as we like from a feminist perspective. And alongside me are... I'm Sita Sean. I'm also a comedy writer in Los Angeles and a stand-up comic. And this is my first watching of Deadwood, which is the reason that I'm here. Well, we like you, too. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's not the only reason. Yeah, you're, you're delightful, <laughs> but you are the newbie. I the am. other two of us are the old cronies who've already seen it. Um, the old woods, as you will. <laughs> we have older ladywood. Um... So, uh, my name is Lynn Sternberger. I'm a television writer in Los Angeles and a Deadwood enthusiast. Awesome. So today we're talking only about the pilot episode. We're going to try really hard not to spoil anything for Sita or for anyone else listening who hasn't watched the show before, which could be hard for me and Lynn, but we're going to do our best. This was written by David Milch. It was directed by Walter Hill, which I had forgotten. He's like such a badass director from the 70s, and you can really feel that kind of warrior spirit in the in the direction of it, I think. Um, and what I think about the most when I think about this pilot episode is just the shit ton of characters that they introduce. They do a beautiful job of balancing all of these sort of introductions. Everybody gets kind of a very distinct introduction as well, which... Um, te- television today were only so well crafted. Um, I didn't know who Walter Hill was, uh, honestly. When I first watched Deadwood, I think I was in my senior year of college. I loved watching television, but I wasn't a professional writer, and I just didn't pay as much attention to who was making the who was who was making the pies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't know that Walter Hill had like this Western background. And that he had actually directed other things set in Deadwood. So he seems like a really smart choice And now that I know that that's exactly what they hired. It's super nerdy from the beginning, which is one of the reasons why, you know, it's so great. You can tell that they thought about every choice that they made along the way is just entrenched in the... I also did not know that most of the characters were based on... I mean, I knew that several of the characters were based on famous figures from history, I didn't realize that almost all of them were. I didn't know Seth Bullock was a real dude. I didn't know that Saul Star was a real dude. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's kind of like an Avengers movie, but just set in the <laughs> Old West. Just all the heroes coming together, forming a band. <laughs> Do you think it was clear who the heroes and the villains are, Sita, on first watching? 
In the in the first watching, I, I did like how how distinct the characters were. I thought there was like a really nice introduction that I hadn't really seen before in a drama. Timothy Oliphant's character, I forget his name, is his name Seth. Saul. Seth. I liked his first scene of the transformation from being a lawmaker into just like this is my destiny. I'm gonna go into Deadwood. And I thought that sent a really nice amount of energy for the tr transition into Deadwood. Like, what kind of world is this where you would leave law behind in order to go and open a general store? Which, frankly, does not sound that glamorous. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, like, I would rather have, like, a gun and a license to kill than, like, a general store, but that's he just... He seems super into his commode. Yeah. Like, <laughs> those thigh-high boots. Yeah. Like... I was like, this is a really kinky, like, old west where everyone's, like, into thigh-high boots. <laughs> Like, everyone wanted them. They the all old... wanted those boots. Right? Because they're all going to go to their gold claims, right? So that's yeah. why Deadwood is cropping up mm -hmm. there, is so everyone can go pan for gold. Right. Oh, so we should just, for people who haven't watched in a while, I stole a quick episode summary off the, uh, the internet. I don't know if you guys have heard of that place. So it's 1876. After executing a last act of justice as a Montana marshal, Seth Bullock relocates to a gold mining camp known as Deadwood, where he and partner Saul Starr look to start a hardware business. Saloon owner Al Swearingen contends with a bungled robbery turned mass murder that threatens to incite mob violence throughout the camp. Hickok and his companions arrive in Deadwood. That is not um, very descriptive. The people of Deadwood go off to hunt down the Native Americans who they suspect butchered a family of white people. Oh, we'll get to that. Ostensibly, <laughs> ostensibly that's what supposedly occurs. I mean, like, that is the loosest outline of what actually occurs. Right. So we open with Seth Bullock, and I remember being so confused yet intrigued by this the first time I watched it, also in college. This is pre-DVR, so we couldn't, like, rewind and be like, what the fuck are they saying with this, like, Western Shakespearean <laughs> cocksucker language? <laughs> and the first death of the whole series is actually quite shocking, because it is when Seth decides to kill a man who's been sentenced to death himself before an angry mob can get to him. Rather than taking any sort of action to try to save the man, he just wants to follow the letter of the law, which is that he's going to be hanged for thievery but he's not going to let someone without a badge do it. I watched this with my wife, and she was also, like, Sita had never seen it before, and she was like, he just stole a horse! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, welcome to welcome to this universe. Like, yeah. that is a, a crime punishable by death. Right? So I like that in a world like that, they make a big deal of it. You really kind of feel that first death, because by the end of this, the bodies are going to be piling up. They're going to be tossing them in a pig pen to get eaten. Like, mm -hmm. the sentiment is going to drain away a little bit. But for that first one, as a modern viewer, I really felt it. Yeah, it's a crazy, uh, impressionable moment. Not only do we get a sense of, like, his moral backbone and the fact that he's not going to be convinced to make cut a deal with this prisoner who, you know, is trying to be like, oh, I know these people that we should rob and you can have half the money and we can both escape into Deadwood and pretend like we never knew each other. And, you know, we know that Seth Bullock is a, is a man of principle and would never do that. But also, like, the kind of brutality of the, the physical act of helping a man to be hung, like, not on a gallows, and the fact that he has to, like, yank his body mm -hmm. down is really shocking for contemporary viewers. Like, we don't even see that in... Handmaid's Tale. The other thing about Seth that I was thinking is that while it was his honor that I think 
let him follow the letter of the law. I think he's also, practically speaking, not willing to go against a mob that wanted mm-hmm. to kill this man. Like, there were, it was just, like, literally a mob of dudes with guns. <laughs> like, and yeah. if he had somehow escaped with the prisoner, he, it would have followed him into Deadwood. And effectively, that execution is his last stand as sheriff and his mm-hmm. last moment in that town. Totally. It so. also was like an amazing introduction to his relationship with Saul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The way that Saul kind of is the distraction initially mm-hmm. with his big cart of crap. Yeah. We, we come to understand hey, that. Those are quality goods. <laughs> quality <laughs> goods. <laughs> big cart of quality goods. Um, they stand by those goods. <laughs> his commodes yeah. and his what, long boots? I think they're called long boots. I think they're hip boots. Hip boots! They're called That's hip boots! Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sita. Um, but the fact that, like, uh, Saul doesn't get his hands as dirty, but he's definitely sort of the Robin mm-hmm. to Seth's Batman. Yes, and he has a little comic relief there when he's like, we're gonna get out of here just as soon as my partner finishes whatever the hell he's writing <laughs> over there. And that's another thing that I love about the show is the sort of weird humor that's injected throughout these very grotesque things that go on. Absolutely. From there, I had remembered it that we immediately start to meet Al Swearingen and his infamous crew. But actually, first, we cut to Calamity Jane, which I thought was great. (laughs) Like, let's establish a female character early. Yeah, I I hadn't thought of it in that sense, but we do get to know Jane, or and I think in the least kind of female context that exists in this universe, yes. which is that she's drunk, she's swearing, um, and making a a ruckus as they're trapped on the road, I guess, into Deadwood. But come to think of it, I think it's sort of Seth's departure from where he I forget exactly where he is Montana from Montana. Then he's ostensibly on the road, and so we're on the road. Mm-hmm. And later we'll arrive in Deadwood, approximately when they arrive in Deadwood. So it makes sense, the sort of, like, transitional mm-hmm. scene. But certainly, yeah. In They're the all on the road to Deadwood. That makes sense, Well, right? they, the, Bill Hickok and those guys break down near Deadwood and mm-hmm. then decide to go in to get a drink and end up staying for a oh, while. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So I like that because it's kind of serendipitous how he and Seth meet because they end up having a nice little bromance together uh, <laughs> in which they have avenged people's deaths even though both of them don't want to take lives anymore and I just think it's funny how they sort of like eye each other up and down and decide they're okay with each other mm-hmm. like it is very much about chemistry more than anything else and I mean I guess the climactic moment of the bromance is when they both shoot that guy in the eye yeah yeah, yeah. and then they're like was that you or me that shot him down Montana they were flirting like, with each other it's, it's weirdly flirtatious <laughs> and as you're saying Hickok has that those long flowing curls that yeah. you just want to the luscious wig that they've given to the actor also two guns come on that's like a pretty apt metaphor for a penis who shot first? I would bet a lot of money right now that there is Bullock Hickok Slash fake. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know if I want to read it. I really don't know if I want to read it. Um, although I do find Hickok's little mustache really kissable too. So before we get to that climactic gun battle, we do meet the infamous Al Swearingen, and Ian McShane is just—I mean, I think he's rightfully re- going to be remembered for this role more than anything else he's ever done. Yes. Because it's—he's electric on mm-hmm. the screen. And this is a guy that I wouldn't think I would want to be spending this much time with in a show. 
Yeah, spoiler alert, Tita, he is the standout of the series. Mm. He was, like, the breakout star of the show, even yeah. though it's a full cast. Timothy Olyphant is amazing as well, and all of the side characters really aren't side characters. They're, like, fully fleshed out characters. But, yeah, for sure, like, Swearingen was the one that everybody was talking about, because not only is his mouth so, like, particularly foul and creative, he's ostensibly the villain but he's got his own logic to things, and actually in a town like Deadwood, you kind of get behind his, you know, lawless sort of organization. Right, but of course the ultimate goal of that is to make sure that the law never comes there, well, and that he can yeah. maintain his, his hold, his reign over the camp. He's driven really by one thing, which is like success in his own business and vision, and um, I think it's a while before we get much backstory at all on why Square Engine is there and, and what his Is he are. British? Because there's that first introduction of him, and somebody's uh, the guy at the bar says, like, you are, like, from the old country. So he's actually British? He's supposed to be. Um, but, yeah, I think that he did such a good... Ian McShane did such a good job of, like, not having his accent that... Mm. It, is a little like what? Yeah, it just kind of shades what he does. I like it because it kind of just adds to the mystery of like who is this man? Like yeah. he could be Satan. I don't know. <laughs> he could be anybody. Maybe he is Satan. And I mean, we could rewatch it with that in mind. Is this just an allegory? <laughs> is Deadwood purgatory? I mean, it could be. Yeah. Deadwood could totally be purgatory. Um, so then we meet one of our other key female characters, Trixie, and. She is a prostitute working in Al Swearingen's gem saloon who has just shot a man who was beating the hell out of her. And I feel like, I wonder if you made a show like Deadwood 14 years later now since it premiered, if this would be the way people would choose to introduce one of the key female characters with this act of violence. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we've come far enough that they would give Trixie something different to introduce her, but I don't know if we have. I actually stand by this introduction as, like, the perfect introduction. Okay. Yeah, she's a prostitute. She's a prostitute, and there's no real, like, I don't know why we would ever try to get around the fact of, like, that's her employment in Deadwood. Sure. But also the fact that she was defending herself against being beat on shows that she also has a sort of um, internal strength, and, like, she's... she's uh, not to be messed with. She has, I guess, a measure of self-respect, even as mm -hmm. a whore. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, like, very character-defining. She shot him through the head. I know. Freaking awesome. Yeah, like, clean across, like, from temple to temple. Like, that's a crazy as shot. the doc makes sure we see later with his instrument that he yeah. sticks through the skull. Yeah, I literally gagged. I <laughs> yeah. forgot that happened, and I was like, oh, this is disgusting. So I thought Trixie, um, and I, I agree with Lynn. I think I'm, I'm trying to think about the most inter, uh, the most recent Western show that we have, which is Westworld, um, and how the the whores were introduced in Westworld. I don't think there was as much of a measure of violence in in that show. In, in fact, if anything, Westworld played up sort of the titillation of the whores in. Mm -hmm. Like, they're introduced as, like, very sexual, and they're, like, you know, they're fun, good time, because they're right. robots or whatever. There's a seduction element yeah. that never exists at the gym. Yeah. yeah. I, I think this, what's good about this is that immediately, 
you see this, like, the first woman that's introduced is Jane, and Jane has to disguise herself, essentially, as a man to be treated with respect and to act in a certain way that, like, breaks all sort of femininity, like, uh, models and conventions in order to separate herself. And this woman, Trixie, she's, um, she's literally used for her body, and she deals in extreme violence because of that, you know? And so I think that's, that's an interesting second character, female character to introduce. And then we have the third female character who's introduced later, who's another mode of being a woman in the West, which is sort of coddled and sheltered. And oh, we're talking about Alma Garrett. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Who doesn't get a ton to do here in the pilot, but yeah. becomes a key character, okay. which you can tell even if you've never seen it before, because Molly Parker is third build. <laughs> so, you know, she's got, she's got some good stuff coming. Let's not forget we're also introduced to Jewel, Mm-hmm. Which, um, who is the cleaner, I guess, mm-hmm. ostensibly, of, of the gem. She does, like, housekeeping. Oh, which one was she? I don't... She's she, the one who buys the gun for Trixie. She gives gotcha, Trixie the gun. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, she is a recurring character. We mm-hmm. see a lot of her. She gets a story later down the line. Um, and also, her relationship with Al we get more insight into as time goes on. I think it was fascinating for me to see a character with a disability in a setting mm-hmm. like played by an actor with a disability. Actor well. with a disability. Okay, like for me, one of the most feminist moments of this whole thing is when Jewel gives Trixie that gun because mm-hmm. we can see that there's sort of like a black market for protect mm-hmm. for protection. And yeah. there's like this um, tr- tribe of women, and even if it's tiny, and even if they're disempowered in a lot of facets of their life, like. They still don't want each other to get beat on. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the main conflict between all of these groups that are arriving at the camp comes because some of uh, Swearingen's lesser henchmen have pulled a job without his permission, which is they have massacred a family that was leaving Deadwood to go back to Minnesota. They were a Scandinavian or German family. They're only referred to with slurs in the <laughs> episode, so could could be uh, any of those ethnicities. And they've tried to make it look like it was the local Native American tribe. Much of the camp falls for this at first, but of course Bullock and Hickok have suspicions about the man's story. Mm-hmm. And they um, force the one of Al's group who's come back to camp stupidly after doing this job to ride back out with them and look for one of the children from the family who they suspect from his story might still be alive. I have a lot of issues with this storyline <laughs> because I think it's really, uh, even watching it knowing what the twist will be, that of course it's not really Native Americans who massacred this family, they're, they're used as a story point without ever being shown or discussed in any other way. And I realize that the characters themselves have the historical attitude of like these are savages and Mm. they use a lot of awful words and say a lot of awful things about them but i like the film the the show makers have decided that that's okay to only show that side of things in this context we actually still have this occurring like you brought up um westworld westworld Mm -hmm. which okay it's not strictly a western because it's Futurist, yeah. a futuristic yeah. Western. Similarly, they have Native American mm-hmm. characters on that show who got zero story and were really just like massacres in the in the in the plot of the structure of Westworld. They were, you know, 
treacherous and rapists mm-hmm. and all this really stuff. for the first season and a half they got one episode in the second season that was a native american centered episode and that was by far the best episode of the second season but also like do we need the stories of mm-hmm. native americans to be like in a ghetto of its own episode you know like, <laughs> <laughs> no and they if, just have a character that we follow like and so the other characters yeah and if and if the consensus is that was the best episode of the show. Like, maybe we should think about making a whole show from that perspective. Like, why does every Western show have to be from the perspective of mm. the white people? Yeah. Um, I've described Westworld previously as a epically badly written historical reenactment show. <laughs> and the Indian episode kind of pointed to that. Because outside of the narrative of the show, the, the, the Indian episode really stood on its own and sort of followed the character and what the, the, the model of that Indian robot and what he had been through in 20 years. Right. So that existed outside of the narrative of the show. and Because the show, in its own story universe, is about a white guy who writes all the stories. Right, because right. there's that main white guy who writes all the stories. So right. he's writing the geisha stories. He's writing the Indian stories. He's writing all of these like kind of stereotypical yeah. stories. And maybe the problem is that, in fact, the showrunners of these shows are those white men. Like, right. So they can they can get meta with it, but they can't actually go back and do something new. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's maybe a failure of imagination, um, or a failure of like faith in. The fact that those stories are valuable and should be told from the perspective of the, of the conquered. Peoples. I mean, I'm saying this as a huge fan of the show Deadwood that I spent half of watching the first episode again, brainstorming ways that you could make a show just like this mm-hmm. that was only about the Native American groups in that area at the time, which I think you could you could do a sprawling, interesting narrative and. Yeah, it would be, somebody out there should write that, and someone should give them money. Like, or even if I mean, there were intermarriages between yeah. Native Americans and colonizing peoples. Like, that would be fantastically interesting if we maybe the white person mm-hmm. could be the Trojan horse, but at least we could get more story within yeah. the universe of the people who had lived on that land yeah. and were suddenly being yeah. created. That is, I think. Interesting idea. That's the main long-term failing of Deadwood as a show, I think, is not engaging with non-white narratives very much at all as we go along. There's a little bit here and there, but... Is it because Deadwood is based on a Western tradition that prioritizes the story of the cowboy and the outlaw? Absolutely. Definitely. (laughs) This is the Indian, right? Absolutely. They weren't, like, actively trying to set out to subvert the tradition mm. they were definitely trying to live within the tradition and yeah. elevate it yeah. with their language with their set design with their depth of character Dramatic mm. and, I, and they do that in all those ways but it's there's still some lost opportunities i think and particularly from our you know 14 years later perspective where yeah. this conversation happen is happening a lot louder even if uh change is slow um and we can't make the show what it isn't. I mean, we're watching it a full, what, 15 yeah, years yeah. after it bowed. So, I mean, there's no retroactive sort of, like, adjustment. But what is interesting, which I suspect will be maybe the only disappointing thing about this movie that they're making, is that we can now, with a sort of, like, current lens think, oh, are they going to revisit Deadwood in a mm-hmm. different way? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is probably going to be no, because it's 
definitely like a fan service kind mm-hmm. of production, but they have had 15 years and sort of like a lot of discussion around representation on television to think about in the interim. So Wu gets like a blink mm-hmm. in the pilot episode. Do you even know? He who got Wu pigs. Is? Yeah, that's <laughs> Wu it. Wu has pigs, uh, which he feeds humans mm-hmm. to. Um, so yeah, like that's his only characterizing yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, but do we think Wu is gonna suddenly come back and be a, a regular? Like, not really. So. No. So we're gonna wrap this up uh, with a discussion of the most feminist versus least feminist mo- moments in the show from our perspective. This was Lynn's idea. I think we're going to keep it recurring as we go down the line of episodes. I don't even know if it's a good idea because it's very strange to think about feminism in a historical context. Like, feminism, first wave feminism, was literally, like, being lived as mm-hmm. the show is set, when the show is set. Right. Um, like, Kate Stanton and, and everything. Like, uh. So the idea of feminism is a little bit modern. Um, yeah, I think we're thinking about this from the perspective of, like, the people who were writing the show in the year 2004, like, what they may have injected into it. Yeah, okay. I mean, approaching it from that angle is probably the only way to do it, because, um... <laughs> How many female writers were on the pilot? On the pilot. On the pilot, or I don't the, know the answer the to that, but there, there, like, Elizabeth Sarnoff was mm. one of the key writers on it, and there are other women um, writers who came along. It was not just David Milch who wrote the script. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows, we, I mean, we do get some great storylines with the few female characters. They're outnumbered, but they get a lot of screen time. So, that's coming up. True. So, I think I already mentioned my most feminist moment, but I, I was actually torn. It was either when Jewel gives Trixie the gun mm-hmm. for self-defense reasons. The other one that I wanted to say was like, yeah, feminism. Um, although Calamity Jane would never call herself a feminist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That language didn't like exist. She's kind of genderqueer, right? For sure. We can talk about that more <laughs> in the future, but yeah, she's definitely like living outside of the roles that have been predicated mm-hmm. as being like appropriate for women, which is yeah. like whore or mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when she learns that the um, Bill and uh, Seth have left town to go track down the the site of the um, the yeah the massacre, and that all of the other men in the saloon are have been basically tricked slash are just lazy assholes <laughs> who would rather drink and whore than um, go and try to seek justice. And she basically says that she doesn't drink with, like, I forget exactly how she's, but cocksuckers, and she's the only person in that, you know, saloon who has any balls. And I was like, yeah, she has balls. <laughs> and all of the people who actually have balls yeah. have no balls. And I thought that was perfect, perfectly feminist. I just want to call out one moment with um, Alma and her stooge of a husband, Brom, who's been tricked into buying a worthless gold claim, and he's a rich idiot, basically. Um, And there's one scene where he's getting ready to go out to his gold claim for the first day, and he's putting on his outfit, and she knows exactly what he's doing, but she's pretending to still be asleep (laughs) until he leaves, and he keeps, like, clearing his throat to get her attention, and... That's just like so real to me because when she when she is with him, she's playing the perfect wife, mm. supportive role. She has this voice that she does where she's like, 
well, that sounds great, dear. I'm sure it'll all be fine. And then really, she just doesn't want to talk to him. I mean, that I don't know if that's feminist or not, but I like that they included that small moment at this point for her to give her a little bit of, not edge, but like an idea that maybe she would want something different for herself. I feel like it's the only control she can assert in her everyday life is to like not give her husband the thing that he's looking for which is her approval on all of his choices yeah because like when he spends all of their money to buy that claim because he stupidly raises the price in this rigged negotiation and he comes home and he's like well honey i'm gonna have to write to the bank and they're gonna have to ask dad to give up to give me more money she's like that's fine dear and it's Partially because she's drugged out of a goddamn gourd. Right. But, she's high on laudanum half the mm-hmm. time. But I also don't think she's ever been empowered in her life to be like, you're a fucking idiot. Why would you spend all of our money on that? And also, I could have done a better job. Like, that just doesn't exist in the lexicon of, like, what right. women are allowed to say to their husbands. And not to mention the fact that she has been, as we'll come to hear more of, brought to Deadwood. She doesn't leave her room. Mm-hmm. She clearly isn't there mm-hmm. because... She thinks, oh, it's a great idea. I'm going to live my best life. Mm-hmm. She's kind of the tag-along. Exactly. I guess my my least feminist moment for the show would be uh, when Spurgeon says, Pussy's half off. <laughs> I was just like, oh. <laughs> like, it made me a little ill. You don't think uh, Spurgeon's a feminist? <laughs> <laughs> no? He's, See, a ter- he's telling that line, right? <laughs> he's not marching in the second wave marches. <laughs> Um, so the way that the female body parts are referred to in the show is like deeply, deeply misogynistic. It's, yeah. it's constantly, I want to get a piece of ass. I want to get a piece of this. Like the language is literally the, you carve out the, the female reproductive parts from the woman. Like yeah. it's not even part, really part of a woman. You know, mm-hmm. they're not saying I want a woman. I want, you know, I want somebody to be with. They're like saying, I just want this one particular piece of a woman, which is like, very gross. Um, and then, so that part, I, re- I remember hearing it and just being totally skeezed. Mm-hmm. And then the most feminist moment, um, a couple of things about Calamity Jane I find interesting. Um, so she does present as very um, anti-model femininity. But I thought that was interesting when she was first introduced that she's actually, she swears up a storm. She goes to Wild Bill Hickok's uh, wagon. And then she asks him how he's doing. She's, like, doing the caretaker role in that mm. moment. She's like, how's that headache? And I was like, what? Why, why do you care about this guy's headache, you know? And then the second moment that happens is when they rescue that child, the, the girl child, the, all the men are like, you know, Timothy Oliphant has baby in his arm. He's, like, like been riding with it for miles. And they see Calamity Jane coming down the road, <laughs> possibly drunk, and they're like, well, she's a woman. She should get this baby. Yeah. And nothing about her says that she should hold give a baby. Me, give me the child. I will take care of it. It's very weird that they decide, okay, this is the person who should clearly be in charge of the child. Yeah. Um, it is super strange. Although, uh, I think that, like, you bring up something super interesting, which is her relationship to, to Wild Bill, because to every other, literally every other man in that town, she kind of puts up this, like, I'm drunk, I'm tough don't fuck with me exterior, but Mm. she definitely has, and it's not the only relationship we'll see in the show where it's like the woman that you see at first is, it has a, as a very different relationship with a male character in Mm -hmm. her life. 
And I'm like, is this a result of, you know, something that the showrunner was processing in their own life or that the episode writers were, like, interested in? Because they, she could have just been allowed to be a really rough-and-tumble woman, but in fact it kind of rounds out her character in yeah, an interesting Yeah, I way. think so, too. I think that, that part of her that becomes a caretaker for Wild Bill Hickok was so interesting to me because I sort of saw her introduction. I was like, oh, I know who this character is. And then when she, like, expressed that concern for Bill, I was like, oh, is this, like, a father figure? Is this, like, a lover? I was, like, very confused by it that. It would bother me more if we didn't have Charlie Utter who is similarly caring for Wild Bill mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, like, financially looking after him. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the two of them together and sort of the, the way that they try to protect this man leads me to believe, like, oh, well, Bill has, like, problems. Not yeah. that, like, her character is inconsistent. It's more like we haven't seen the full extent of, like, why the why Bill needs these yeah. people around him. And why they have such loyalty to him, even as he's doing nothing but losing money they don't have at the poker table and riding around with his new bestie. <laughs> <laughs> he is a good shot, though. He is a good shot. Right yes. in the eye. Right. right Fun times. Did you have a least feminist moment, Brandy? Did I have a least feminist moment? I have so many feelings about the closing uh, scene mm-hmm. where Trixie climbs into bed with Al. And I think I land on not loving it here in this episode, but knowing also that it's part of... It is a moment when a woman uses what she has to manipulate a man, right? Because she knows that she needs to get back on Al's good side after mm-hmm. killing that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows he has a soft spot for her for whatever reason at this point, but that it's only going to go to a point. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it's not feminist, but it's very interesting to me thinking about her long-term character, like her determination to use whatever resources she can get a hold of, including her own body, to keep herself safe. The thing that, to me, was so disarming about that moment, because it really is sort of a shock to the system, is that she puts her, literally disarms herself, Mm -hmm. puts her gun on his nightstand, which basically tells him, I have another gun, Mm -hmm. which he had told her, no, don't get another fucking gun. Don't get another gun. So in a sense, is she, is it a declaration? Like, I'm going to have another gun and you're going to have to deal with it. But also I'm telling you that I have it. So it shows like deference or something and I'm putting it on your nightstand. So you're controlling it. It was like a very complex moment to sort of take apart. And the the second thing about that is that it's not a sexual exchange. At least that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing them like spoon, which is bizarre. Um, Which tells us like... He's still wearing his long johns. Yeah. He's got a gun under the covers. Maybe it's (laughs) like a more emotional support kind of thing than it is like an exchange of sex. Yeah, and it's almost like she knows he actually does need emotional support, but would never admit it, and so she decides to give it to him in that moment, which also suits her own long-term needs. Like, there's so much going on there that you can't even, like, know for sure. There's there's an ambiguity, but there's so many layers of it. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't know quite how to feel about that that moment as the way that they close out the pilot. I mean, that's a lot of, that's significant. In the scene um, that she has with her customer right before we see her with Al, 
the customer is like probing her for what happened what the fuck happened to your face you know like she's so beat up and in that moment he's like i'm willing to pay you a dollar for you to tell me what's going on and she refuses Mm -hmm. she refuses because that is like private information between her and al and the guy who died you know so i thought that was like her privileging like the relationship between her and al over over money over you know that's a great point yeah and I think your that her customer you're referring to is Ellsworth, who mm. will have a much. Uh, he's not just a customer at the whorehouse. He gets probably the best uh, speech in the whole pilot, although there were so many. Yeah. But what he's basically talking about, like how fuck everybody else, he's got his claim, he's making his, he's finding his gold, he's making his money, and he can stick his dick mm-hmm. wherever he wants. And that's, I mean, it was an epic. Yeah epic declaration of I'm making it in this like new world um but he they changed a lot um and I think it was super interesting to have them like talk to each other mm-hmm. and she's unwilling to like be a person in that moment she's very much like I am a good and I don't want to share my private thoughts and feelings with you mm-hmm. um so I, I that was a very interesting exchange yeah and it is an, an early sign, despite all of his bluster at this point, that Ellsworth sees women as people, which yes. becomes actually a key thing as we go on. Um, Ellsworth becomes perhaps the most feminist character. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> Spoilers for Sita. Sorry. I hope he wears that breast cancer pin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, as we said, a lot of these side characters end up having just wonderful storylines as we go along they pack a lot in to the three seasons we're gonna see totally so. and oh for my least feminist moment um i just wanted to make mention of al and he's a very difficult man to he but when he basically looks at trixie's face says oh he really beat on you like he really did a number on you mm-hmm. and then he throws her into a wall i was like He's doing it wrong. He's doing it wrong. This is my least feminist moment. It was an easy one to choose, which mm-hmm. is like seeing a, a woman as a human for a, a split second and then deciding to reinforce yeah. your your power dynamic by throwing her into a wall. Yeah, and, and it on is. Her throat. And that is yes, why he does even it. Even stepping on her throat. That is why he does it, to reassert dominance mm-hmm. after showing her a second of compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Which is even worse because it shows that he has the capacity to feel the compassion, but that he overcomes his own compassion to reach into oh, swearing. Like, yeah, it's crazy how complicated they made the characters in such a brief amount of time. Mm-hmm. So incredibly impressive. Um, so I think it'll be like fun to talk about what progress they make over the course of the first season. And who changes for the, I don't know, bad, I don't think that we work in, like, moral absolutes in this universe. No. But who, who changes and sort of, to become a more fully realized human being, mm-hmm. and, like, who just spirals out. Yep. Doesn't get the same treatment. Yep. Thank you for listening to our first episode of Ladywood. We will be back soon with a discussion of episode two, and continue on down until the release of the new film. Whenever that may be. I mean, part of me still thinks it's never going to come out, even though they're supposedly filming it as we speak. We are on Twitter at LadywoodCast. Uh, I, Lynn Sternberger, am also on Twitter at, at Lynn Sternberger. Uh, I, Sita Sean, am also on Twitter at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And you can find me at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. 
Um, and uh, Sita has upcoming shows oh, in LA yeah. if you want to see her in person. If after one episode you're just like, get me to that lady. <laughs> you can get me at on October 13th at the, the Japanese American Cultural Center for the Kami Kami Festival. And also on October 18th at the Rip Bodice, which is this fantastic romance. Love the Rip Bodice. Yeah, the romance bookstore. They do a, a monthly show um, at the bookstore. And it's always a great lineup. I have a, an amazing time when I go and everyone should go and buy books. Thanks for listening. Yeah.